friends, my name is Ray Galea. Great to see you here, whether you're here in Platinum or online. Just, it's terrific that we get the privilege and the freedom in this beautiful land to join together from nations, tribes, languages, to praise God, to hear his holy word and encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Um, I want to say a couple of things. One is that all um, our messages now, our Bible talks, will actually be on a new podcast. And that's good that in case you miss a Sunday, you can access it. You can get the whole Lord's Prayer series, for example. But even more than that, you can actually share it with others. Because remember, the kingdom of God grows as the word of God grows and is spread uh, and uh, transforms lives. Second thing I want to say is... Um, uh, next Sunday, we've got Vision Sunday. We're going to be looking at uh, what's next in terms of our great plans, or, or sorry, plans from our great God uh, for the next 12 months and beyond. I'm really excited about that. Uh, so please come and, uh, and uh, not only come, but come with hearts that want to pray because we want to bathe our prayers, our plans in, in prayers. We want to prayerfully depend on the Holy Spirit. So to that end, we've got these cards produced and they're kind of a... Re, uh, rewording of the Lord's Prayer with fresh words, because remember the Lord's Prayer that we've been going through is a model for prayer. It's not that we just say them word for word. And so hopefully you can pick up these cards, prayer cards uh, from the prayer desk in the foyer uh, and online. But it's an opportunity for us to be reminded that apart from Jesus, we can do, we can do nothing. And so uh, we must come to our Lord in prayer as we think about the future of fellowship and the next steps that under God we will take by his grace. To that end, let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for bringing your people together. Thank you for the friends and visitors who have come, those who have come with faith, those who have come with doubting faith, those who have come with no faith at all, because all are welcome here at Fellowship, Lord, and we want to say thank you for bringing us together. And your word, Lord, is for everyone. And so we ask, Lord, that uh, we pray up front that you would bind the evil one so that he will not snatch the word from any of us who are here today, nor allow us to be distracted. For this word is for each of us. For yours is a living word, a double-edged sword that cuts both, cuts both ways, not to do harm, but to build, heal, and restore, and all in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, you know, the moment... A person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ is the moment Satan puts a target on your back. You leave his kingdom, you become the object of his interest because he does not want you glorifying God. You see, once you become a follower of Jesus, you enter into the kingdom of God, not merely as a citizen, wonderful as it is, but as a soldier. We're in a battle. We now come to the last of the six requests addressed to our Father in heaven. And Jesus says, this is how I want you to pray. On your lips must come words that reflect this truth. Matthew 6.13, our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's an acknowledgement that there is a devil, that he is real, that he has a degree of power, and that we need to ask God for spiritual protection. Wow, I need to pray like this. I'll, I'll confess, this is probably, of all the prayers in the Lord's Prayer, the one I'm most deficient in. I think it's because I'm a Westerner. We're not in an arm wrestle against human beings. We're in an arm wrestle 
with demonic principalities and powers. You can see Ephesians 6 for that. Just when you think you're engaged in a problem with another human being, think again. Chances are you're being played by Satan. We need to keep reframing the context in which we serve our Lord. So take Ephesians 4.26 as an example. The Apostle Paul says, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Wise words. Then he says, And do not give the devil a foothold. You give yourself permission to vent your anger in an ungodly way to people in your life, and you are inviting Satan to climb over your personality and your soul and your relationships. A true story. My friend told me about two men who joined his Bible study on the same day. And they didn't know each other. <clears throat> and uh, in the course of the Bible study, an argument broke out between them. And it, it got so heated by these two Christians in a Bible study that they nearly had a punch up. Well, fortunately, they managed to restrain themselves from that. But then they left the Bible study in a huff in two different directions, never to return again. Well, that was bad. What was worse is, guess what they were arguing about? The definition for the fear of the Lord. The definition for the fear of the Lord. That is too stupid for words. Little did they know. They thought they had an argument with another brother about a definition. What they were doing is being pawns in the hands of the evil one. Deliver us from evil. <laughs> no point pointing the, pointing the finger though. As I was preparing this message last week for Creekside, I had a little bit of an argument with my dear wife and I went to bed. It was kind of passive aggression. I was sulking. I was angry at her. She's over there right now. <laughs> sorry, babe. <laughs> but I didn't say sorry that night. I should have. That night I was, as I'm preparing this message, right? Talk about a hypocrite. I'm hearing the word. You know, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. I knew by not going into the lounge room and apologizing to Sandy, I was putting a smile on someone's face and it wasn't God's. I, had to, I waited till the next morning before I finally got my acting to gear. Satan, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, ready to devour. He is the most consistent attender of fellowship. Did you know that? He's always turning up. Because the gospel of the kingdom is, is preached every Sunday, right? So he'll always turn up and he's trying to distract you right now, in case you're wondering. That argument you had with someone in the car coming here or in the metro is still with you. That bad week you've had that's followed you through. He's using all of it. He's using your phone right now maybe to just distract you. Because he does not want the word of God to be received by you and give God the glory. Satan. He'll batter you with persecution. Some of you know that really well. He'll beguile you with lies. He'll bring disunity into your family, your workplace, your marriages. But resist the devil we must. We are not engaged in a battle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And as we ponder these requests, I want us to consider a set of points, important points. Number one, <clears throat> learn to breathe in and breathe out. <clears throat> Do not hold your breath as a Christian. These last five weeks, we've been breathing in the word of God. We've been hearing from Jesus himself. He's been teaching us. This is the framework in which I want you to pray in. Not the word for word prayer, but the framework. I want you to breathe in how I want you to pray. Then I want, to breathe, I want you to breathe out God's prayers, God honoring prayers. And the Lord's prayer 
and the Lord wants me to pray prayers that involve me recognizing that I am vulnerable and that I need his protection and the evil one does exist. And I need to have this mindset, not once every couple of months, but day by day. Now, depending on your culture, you'll be more or less attuned to this. For cultures like my own, Westerners, who are generally materialists, who only believe what they see, very easy to think Satan is somehow just a metaphor. But he is a personal being, real, aggressive, and wanting to undermine your faith. For those of us who come from other cultures and perhaps other Christian traditions, you can have such an inflated view of Satan, you think he was actually equivalent to God being all-powerful and all-knowing, and you need to know that he has limited power and that he needs to be understood in having that limited power and not to give him more powers than he deserves. After Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in the 40 days, we read these interesting words in Luke 4.13. We read, When the devil had finished all this testing, he left him until an opportune time. Point two, know when Satan is likely to tempt you. And when, when might that be? Well, technically, it could be any moment of any day. It can be in different seasons, in the good and in the bad. When you're healthy and feeling like you're invincible. <laughs> when you're wealthy and feeling like you don't need anyone to help you. When you're successful and falling into pride. When you're sick and feeling stressed. When you're bored and distracted. <laughs> When you're in love and have forgotten the love of your Father in heaven, when you've been wronged and embittered and tempted to be embittered and feeling sorry for yourself, when you're not where you should be. Have you ever wondered, what was the context for David committing adultery with Bathsheba? The opening verse, 2 Samuel 11, says this, that when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem in the palace, lounging, lurking, looking, lusting. And then he committed adultery. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And a very good question to ask yourself is this, am I where I'm supposed to be right now? Well, you can say that yes to now. <laughs> well done. <laughs> You're exactly where you should be. But through the course of this week, keep asking, am I where I'm supposed to be? Because if not, run. <laughs> Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. We know Adam, Israel, Jesus, and the rest of us constantly have been tempted with power, pleasure, and pride. It's pretty much it. Jesus alone resisted any attempt to sin at any moment. He's the only one who could look people in the eye and say, which of you can accuse me of sin? And know that there's no comeback. And our Father in heaven announced Jesus, as it were, the winner when he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, the covenant keeper. And because of that, we know that as we engage in the battle with temptation and sin, we know, point three, that the battle for our soul has been won. The battle for our soul has been won, point three. It was fought in a life lived through obedience. That obedience that was tested in the wilderness, that was tested in the Garden of Gethsemane, a life, you could almost describe Jesus' whole life as a life that says, not my will but yours be done. You know, the two things 
Western cultures really value our independence and creativity. Jesus, when it came to his father, had none of it. He only said what the father wanted him to say. He only did what the father wanted him to do. He stayed dead on track from womb to tomb. And that's why when he got to the cross, he could die for your sins instead of his own. And there at the cross, his victory was secured for us. Look at Colossians 2. Interestingly, and I didn't realize this, but Bill had actually, Pastor Bill had preached this same passage or referred to it last week. Look at Colossians 2.13. As to what the victory looks like, he forgave us all our sins. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, gone, our big I owe you to God, gone. He's taken it away, hallelujah, nailing it to the cross, praise the Lord. Having disarmed the powers and principalities, who's that? That's Satan and his cohorts. He made a public spectacle of them. They thought they were shaming Jesus, but in the end, Satan was the one who was shamed at the cross, triumphing over them by the cross. Once the penalty of, this is, understand how the cross works. There's many aspects to the cross. At the heart of it is Jesus taking the penalty for our sin. Once that's done, Satan has been disarmed, defanged. All of a sudden now, he has got no authority to accuse you. Remember, that's what his name means, the accuser. And he's got, he, he can't level the threat of hell over Christians anymore. It's like he's been stripped of that weapon. You may, he may want you to think he can condemn you. He can't condemn you. He'll shoot bullets at you, but they're just blanks. Satan has been disarmed. The accuser has nothing to do. In Christ, you can't make God angry. I love saying it that way. I feel, when I first said it, I said to myself, is, is that true? Can I say Yes. That's, that was the Bible verse that was read out in the, Lord's, in the Lord's Supper. He was our propitiation. The cross is like a lightning rod that deflected all of God's anger away from us and onto Jesus, his own son. So when we do battle with temptation and Satan, we're doing it from the vantage point of the victory of the cross. In other words, Satan may know your past, but you know his future and he's heading for the pit. Amen? Amen. It's fantastic. So now know the difference between the way in which the spirit and Satan work, because I think sometimes believers get the two confused. When Satan tempts you, it comes with the aim of wanting to condemn all of who you are with no measure of mercy and grace. But when the Spirit convicts you, it's always of specific sins that you and I have done with the, with the wooing of the Spirit that enables you to repent and with the sure promise that you'll be forgiven. Condemnation is the goal of Satan. Transformation is the goal of the Spirit. And that's why before you end up preaching the gospel to anyone else, you've got to preach it to yourself. I always say a mature Christian always gives himself a good talking to every morning. That you wake up reminding yourself you're a child of God. The judge of all the earth is your dad. Heaven's your home. The spirit of God dwells within you. You're part of God's forever people. And whatever, the, whatever comes through the next day, nothing's going to change that. You are a child of God. Don't Listen to your feelings of condemnation. Chances are Satan is using those words that have come from family and friends who said and did things that they should not have done. And he'll use those words and use it to condemn you, 
Do not listen to your feelings of condemnation. Preach against them. Preach to your feelings, friends. Don't listen to them. And yet, and I know you mightn't like this, but God will test you because he loves you. The word for testing in the original and the word for tempting is exactly the same word. And so you've got to understand the difference of the meaning depending on the context. And in James 1, we have two different context, the same words used in two different ways. So James 1, verses 2 to 4. God will test you. Consider it, what? Pure joy when what happens? My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, sufferings of many kinds, what? Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. So trials, suffering actually grows faith and actually is critical to helping me become mature as a Christian. I'm not saying it's pleasant. I'm not saying I you know, particularly look forward to it. But the reality is, it actually has that purpose in God's plan. Uh, one friend of uh, my wife and I, um, she said one, one night when we were at her place for dinner, she said, I don't like the idea of God testing me. It feels like he's an insecure lover who's trying to catch me out. <laughs> I love people who don't pretend. <laughs> and uh, and I, I get where she was coming from. Anyway... As the night went on and we changed topics, she just started talking about how her, she'd been through six very bad weeks of suffering. And, uh, and she said, you know, I never felt more loved by my husband than these last six weeks. She was answering her own question when she said that. Because the testing of that suffering produced in her husband a greater love for her that she delighted in. Oh, no, no. Testing is a good thing, friends, not a bad thing. God is the great recycler. He turns the suffering of this world into the fruit of the Spirit. I know that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> really. I want to go through life living, you know, on a bed of roses and then dying in my sleep. That's what I would like. <laughs> in fact, I want heaven on earth right now. I don't want any suffering. <laughs> And God says, in this age, there is a quota because I'm shaping you to become more like my son. And uh, I heard a preacher once say when he preached on James 1, and I couldn't believe he said it. He said he would always pray for his kids that God would protect them from suffering and rejection and pain. I think, yeah, that's what I pray for. And then he says, but I've changed the way I pray for my kids now in light of, what, light of that passage. Consider it pure joys when trials come. Yeah, yeah, what do you pray now? He says, now I pray, Father, I want my children to go through just enough suffering so they become mature. I want them to go through just enough loneliness so they cry out to you, Lord. I want them to experience just enough rejection so that they desire the approval of God. I'm thinking to myself, that's wacky. <laughs> Actually, that's consistent with the word of God. You can't become mature without trials. Suffering is our friend. Sure, it'll make us either bitter or better. Satan wants us to become bitter through it. And so that's why we need to remember God will test you, but he will never tempt you. And that's point five. God will never tempt you. Look at James 
When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, so God will test your faith, but he'll never tempt your faith. You think, right, what's the difference? Well, the difference is this. The aim of a test is for you to pass it. The aim of a temptation is for you to fail it. Mm. I was playing cricket, hence the bat. I was playing cricket with my gorgeous uh, daughter, my youngest daughter, Maddie, when she was seven. There's a lovely photo of her. And uh, see, I did have dark hair once. It wasn't always grey. I was young once. I just want you to know that. I was once 20. I was once 16. Yes, I know. Anyway, I'm playing French, French cricket, so it's not the real cricket, uh, and we were sort of batting to each other uh, and so forth. And as we were uh, batting to each other and trying to catch the ball, my Maddie, my youngest, said, Dad, I noticed that when you hit the ball, you want me to catch it. But when I hit the ball, I want you to miss it. <laughs> I said, that's right, darling. That's, that's why you're like Satan, I'm like God. <laughs> because Satan wants you to fail the test and curse God, but God wants you to pass the test, become more like Jesus and glorify God. See, it's always in front of us, isn't it? Suffering. It'll either make us bitter or better. Which is it to be? In the very same event, God and Satan have very two different purposes. Who will you give the glory to? That's always the question before us. Now, so it's no surprise then in point six that no temptation is beyond what you can bear. Now, I think this is probably one of the hardest promises to believe, especially if you've been locked in to addictive sin. 1 Corinthians 10, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The promise is that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to. That is to say, he will always enable you to say yes to Jesus and no to sin. So Satan may have a target on your back, but God has your back. So Satan may have a target on your back, but God has your back. The work he's begun in you, he wants to bring to completion. Which means that when I sin, when you sin, you can never say the devil made me do it. <laughs> I know you feel like saying it. Hansi Kronier was misquoted as saying it. He was a former cricket and captain Christian of South Africa and then got busted for match fixing. And uh, he was wrongly quoted as saying the devil made me do it. What he actually said is I got my eyes off Jesus and I, and I, and I finally I, I listened to my, I gave into my flesh and Satan, which is actually different from the devil made me do it. Because as a Christian, I sin is my responsibility. God has given to you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit to resist the evil one. Resist the devil and he will flee. That's the posture I need to take. So that when I do fail, and I will, and Jesus seems to have expected it because he built it into the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, then we've got to own it 100%. And that's always good anyway. It's always good for others to hear you owning it. And it's good for your soul to own it. Deliver us from the evil one. Point seven. What that means is take radical steps to deal with temptation. This is very important. You're the 
part answer to this prayer. You know that, don't you? you? Lord, you're praying, empower me to be ruthless when it comes to sin and temptation. Ruthless to the temptations of the evil one. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 30. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Whoa. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Too many play games when it comes to sin and temptation. And Jesus said, do not play games with sin and temptation. If your hand causes you to sin, what? Get a manicure? No. Get an amputation. I won't have a picture for that. I'll just leave it at the manicure. <laughs> Better to think, Jesus. I mean, the, the thing about Jesus' teaching is there's nothing grey about it. <laughs> Better to enter into heaven as an amputee than to enter into hell full-bodied. Now, of course, you're going to get a resurrected body. So he's only what he's doing is using strong language to make the point. I remember watching a movie called 127 Hours. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a true life account of a man called Aaron Ralston who was a mountain climber, had a boulder fall on his arm. He's locked in there, can't leave. He's, he's kind of trapped for about six days and he knows he's dehydrating and dying. No one knows where he is, so he knows that this is going to end in death. And when he gets to that point and realises there's no hope coming, he pulls out his blunt knife, and I emphasize blunt, uh, to be blunt, because that's what he says, and he severs his arm. You can see you can see the prosthesis on the next uh, slide. Why would he do that? I'll tell you why he does it. He wants to live. Do you think there's any regret in him cutting his He might regret mountain climbing, but he's not regretting cutting his arm. Why? Because he wants to live. And you and I, we want to live forever. You know, every 30 seconds, there's an amputation happening somewhere in this world. Why? Because we don't want the infection to spread. So we'll cut our finger, our arm, our, our, our leg, some part of us so that we can live. So when was the last time you committed a spiritual amputation as you seek first the kingdom of God? It was 1995, I was 35, I was a young pastor, and I got into the habit of sitting in the lounge room. My wife, Sandy, goes off to make a cup of tea. She likes making a cups of tea, so there's lots of this going on. And I'm sitting down, I'm watching TV, and when she leaves, the remote control, I flip it over to another station where you're guaranteed clothes are going to drop within 15 minutes of a movie starting. It was that particular TV station. And every time she left, I'd flip it over, have a look, turn the volume down so I wouldn't get busted. Then she'd come back in, I'd turn the volume up, change the station, covering myself. The usual sinful, stupid patterns that men do. Anyway, not just men. Anyway, this went on week after week, month after month, for six months. Now, I've been in an accountability group for 31 years. I, and I encourage you to do the same. You want to be like Jesus? It's a community project. It's not a, do not be a solo person. Anyway, I confessed it to my accountability group. I even confessed it to Sandy. But no change. Until one day I'm in the lounge room with my accountability group and I pick up the remote control and I'm so sick of this sin. I said to Steve, my dear brother, I said, Steve, take the remote control. I don't want to see it again. And he took it. My kids were really upset. <laughs> I said, my godliness is the most important thing here. 
And I tell you what, oh, the joy of a clear conscience. It was just liberating. I didn't realize the dead weight I'd been carrying for six long months and the freedom that came with repentance. I've got to tell you, friends, if you're stuck in whatever you're stuck in, make that decisive decision. It might be a group of people who are influencing you more than you're influencing them. Well, let me tell you, it's time to cut them loose if they're influencing you for ill and sin. Make the hard call. That's our problem. We will not make the hard decisions and then wonder, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it because you haven't made a hard decision. There's an amputation that's required. What is it in your life that you need to amputate and deal with when it comes to sin and temptation? Because I tell you, on the other side of it is a whole lot of joy and freedom. And do not let the evil one make you think that God is ripping you off. I tell you, if I didn't make that decision then, let me tell you that trajectory. Chances are, guarantee I wouldn't be your pastor today. And, and chances are, I mightn't be married to my wife. Because sin never stays at the same level. It always escalates. It's like any addiction. It always, always needs more to feed the sin to be satisfied. Okay, last point, point eight. Learn Satan's lying games. Jesus is not, uh, sorry, Satan, Jesus said of Satan that he's not bilingual. He only has one language and it's lying. <laughs> he cannot tell the truth. Even if he wanted to, which he doesn't, he cannot tell the truth. It's his mother tongue. But the thing is, he never presents it to you as a lie. It's always a lie wrapped up in half truths. Just enough truths for you to believe it. So today he says, oh, you've gone through a lot. Go and sin. God will understand. You deserve it. You've been treated really badly. And God will forgive you. Then tomorrow after you sin, he says, oh, you are never going to be forgiven. Oh, there's no way God's going to put up with that rubbish. Oh, you might as well sin again. <laughs> he gets you in the front end and then he gets you in the back end. <laughs> He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And the thing is, he never comes straight out with it. It always begins with a question. Did God really say? Always getting you to dislodge your confidence and understanding of the word of God. And you know, Satan's strategies, it's not rocket science. It worked with Adam and Eve. It's been working with us. It, it, it's, it's a very effective strategy. I mean, you may not obviously like Satan, but you've got to give it to him. He is very He's, he's like ACDC, never breaks the rules. He just plays the same thing over and over again. One simple message. And, the, and there's two. He goes for you in two areas. Number one, he gets you to doubt God's word. He gets you to believe the lie that you're wiser than God. Think about it. Here we are, a little blimp on the plane of human history. Every one of us wrapped up in a little cultural echo chamber. And we think we know better than God. It's like, it's like my, I was in the car with my granddaughter. She's like four or five. She's five. And the, the GPS, with all of that sophisticated software, is telling me where to go. And she's saying, no, 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 this is the way you should go. I'm thinking, Grace, you're five years old. I'm either going to listen to you or the GPS. But I, and then I looked and I thought, that's me. 
where I keep thinking I'm wiser than God. And then secondly, we think, we, we not only doubt God's word, we doubt God's goodness, as if he's trying to rip us off. He went to all the trouble of putting up with us, sending his son to die for us. What, he wants to rip us off now? We're idiots. <laughs> God only wants good for you. And he's saying, don't think you're wiser than me. I know the best outcome and the best way to that outcome. Trust me. You know, the world now is going through the biggest social experiment it has ever seen. We are now revisiting big questions on gender and, uh, and sexuality and identity. All deconstruction, very little construction. And it sits on three decades in which, especially in the Western world, but it's infiltrated everywhere, where from the moment you watch your first Disney movie, you're being told three things. Number one, happiness, the most important thing in the world. Now, there's a truth in that and a whole lot of lies. Secondly, um, you've got to be true to yourself. And again, there's a truth in that and a whole lot of lies. And then thirdly, we're told, don't let anyone tell you what to do except the people who tell you to not let anyone tell you what to do. <laughs> them they want to be listened to, but not everyone else. And so this experiment is taking place as we've been fed from little children these three mantras, promising freedom, happiness, and a new community. And who do they target? It's always the youngest and the vulnerable, like teenagers who feel like they don't belong. Hello? Is, has there been any of us who as a teenager felt like we belonged? But what they do is they retell the story, give a different explanation why they don't belong, raising questions about how they need to be true to themselves, how they shouldn't let anyone tell them how to live like the word of God and the church and Jesus Christ. And again, promising freedom and happiness and a new community and so many options Endless options. You know, when we pray, deliver us from evil. Lead us not, uh, uh, let, let us not be tempted by the evil one. Well, it's not just, you notice it's a we prayer, our prayer. Because we're not just concerned for our own holiness or the holiness of even our own family. But the holiness of God's people. Whether they be 17-year-olds, 7-year-olds, 35-year-olds, 45-year-old men in midlife crisis. Um, 75 year olds who are still tempted as much as anyone else deliver us from the evil one why because the evil one's got a chokehold on the world the evil one has turned the bible into hate speech the evil one who is presenting disciples of Jesus as oppressors who are seeking to do harm on the wrong side of history and now a new story is being told all the time so that in the end it will silence the word of God from being heard and setting people free. Oh, we are like plasticine in the hands of Satan, the great liar. Train your souls, your minds to see through the lies of Satan and the schemes of this world. Let me give you an example because I think we've got to learn to keep stepping back and see how he operates. Um, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychology's nephew, um, uh, was a, uh, had an ad, uh, advertising company in the 1920s in New York. And the cigarette company CEO went up to him and said, look, 50% of the market is not smoking, women, and we want to get women to smoke. How do we do it? So he said, leave it with me. 
So uh, this guy, the head of uh, the advertising company, who remember, he's learned from Sigmund Freud about the conscious and the subconscious and so forth. He's learned from Sigmund Freud how people tick. And so he organised that on a special Easter Day parade in New York City, 1929, he organised for a group of very attractive women to be walking in that march. And at a certain point, when the photographers were ready, they and there they are on the screen... Now, it may look as it's cold there, right? So they got their jackets on, but there they got... What they did was they lifted up their dresses, they reached for a packet of cigarette in their garter belts, they pulled out what they called torches of freedom, cigarettes, and they lit them up and raised their hands. And the photograph was taken, and it went right around the world. And the message was this, smoking empowers women and sets them free. And that's how they would have seen it. But what you and I know, what we all know now is, what was all behind that was a cigarette company wanting to make money. They didn't care about women. All they did was give women cancer. All they did was shorten the lives of those women by five years. All they did was cause some women to die of emphysema, one of the worst ways of dying. Now, the point here is not about smoking or feminism, all right? The point here is that's an analogy of how Satan works. He promises you freedom, happiness. He promises you that you've got a choice you can make. You've got to be true to yourself. You've got to be set free. But all he's doing is enslaving you to sin, addiction, and death. And what is the response to all this? It's very simple. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus because he alone is good. He alone is the one you can trust. No matter what the passing parade of fashions, trends are going on in the world, keep accessing the word of God and fighting the lies of Satan with the word of God. Because as Jesus said in the wilderness to Satan, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I'm going to trust him. I ain't going to trust you, you liar. And you fight, you know how you fight the temptation of pleasure? You fight it with more pleasure. You fight short-term pleasure with long-term joy, joyful obedience that lasts. Three years ago, I lost 20 kilos. And um, you know one of the things that helped me? It was actually reframing it. I, this thing about finding pleasure with pleasure. So what I would do is, when someone offered me a really nice cake, baklava, that's, that's my Achilles heel, I love baklava. And it comes to me, I think, I could eat you now and you will give me approximately five minutes of pleasure. That's good. Or I could not eat you and I could have 10 hours of pleasure in not eating you. I'm going to go for that one. I was set free. Now, I'm not talking about dieting here. I'm talking about something really important. Temptation with sin. You fight pleasure with pleasure. And that's why we all need to learn to be Christian hedonists. Because we need to, believe, we need to stop believing the lie that somehow God is ripping us off. His way is the best way. And you fight power in this age with the power of the age to come. You fight pride, the temptation to put yourself at the center of the story with a redefinition of what greatness is. And Jesus says, you want to be great? Good, be great. Let me tell you what greatness looks like. It's not about getting your will. It's about serving others and being like my son. So friends, keep breathing in the word of God so you can breathe out God-shaped prayers. And part of that will actually help you say, fend off the evil one. Because that's what Jesus says in Matthew 26. Look what he says. 
Watch and pray. Actually, let's say it together. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is willing. Okay, so remember, we're soldiers, not just citizens in the kingdom of God. Amen? That uh, we're not fighting against principality, uh, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, we're fighting against principalities and powers. That Satan, yeah, he's got a target on our back, but you remember this, your Father in heaven has your back. And the work he's begun in you, he's going to bring to completion. Of that you can be guaranteed. Brothers and sisters, uh, we started the Lord's Prayer or rather, our Lord Jesus started the Lord's Prayer with our Father in heaven. And uh, I, what I'd like us to do now is turn to the screens because let's listen to one woman, Solida, who said she learned to refuse the temptation of not forgiving her father by being overwhelmed by the love of her heavenly father. Watch and enjoy, and then I'll close in prayer. My father and mother divorced when I was one year old. And I was raised by my mom with my mom with two siblings. She used to feel shame with the community that her husband left her and left his responsibility. So I grew up with this shame and guilt. All my childhood and my teenage years, I was really dreaming to have a father. I needed a father. And I had this question in, in my mind, why he brought us to this world since he doesn't want us? So that really have a bitterness uh, feeling. One day I remember I just look up the heaven and just start talking to the Lord. And I said, okay, I can say my father, he ran away from his responsibility. I didn't know this is a blessing. But what about you, God? Where are you? What's the main reason I'm here? Why you brought me to this world? And this question grew up with me. I remember one day, one of my brother's friends, he visited us, and he was talking about Jesus in, in a new way to me. He was telling me, Listen, Solida, if you accept Jesus as your savior, you will become a child of God. And then he read to me one verse from John 1.12, and he said, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not only that, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human dis decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I said, what? And I said, finally, I will have a father. Then he said, you should repent and pray and ask him to come into your life. And I start crying. So weird until now and, and remember this moment. I feel so. Then I cried a lot. And I said, Lord, I believe you. Forgive my sins and help me to forgive. I needed to forgive. And come into my heart. 
I got answer for my question. But God make me because he loves me. He wants to have a relationship with me. I'm enjoying his fatherhood, that he cares to have relationship with us. And I'm precious to him. That's why he paid a big price for me on the cross, because he loves me. So now I'm a child of God. I'm his daughter, his precious daughter. I'm a daughter of the king. So I really give glory to him. Solida and Jack, husband and wife. Thank you, Solida, for sharing that story. Solida will be uh, with the prayer team if you want to come and say hello. They oversight our Arabic ministry. We're so thankful, uh, along with others, and thank you guys for being involved. Let's stand and uh, close our time of this series on the Lord's Prayer by actually saying together the Lord's Prayer. Join with me. And this says, Jesus, is how you should pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.